views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. So when will we be paid? I'm not sure. I guess when there's money to pay you. Now look, look, look. I'm only the messenger here, boys and girls. I can only repeat what I've been told, and that ain't much. What are we doing to resolve this? I mean, what is the paper doing? I have no idea. They haven't exactly asked for my input. What's going on? Have you tried to cash your paycheck? I deposited it. Rubber. Again? They said last week's problem was a clerical error. Yeah, like being broke. And you know, and there's a rumor the paper's going under. Jimmy, there's always a rumor. It's usually true. Is there anything else, Chief? Any more surprises? Um... Uh, they talk about layoffs. What? They can't do it. All I know is, unless we find ways to save money around here, we're all going to be out of business. No business lunches, no payments for sources, no cabs. We might as well hang up our word processor. I mean, come on, we'll adjust. Hopefully it's only temporary. Clark, we're newspaper people. We're supposed to have the resources to write the news as it happens. Old news isn't news, it's history. Yeah, well, I think it's a scam. Those pinstripe pinheads upstairs only want us to think the planet is broke. Why would they do that? I've seen it before. Management pretends there's some crisis and panics people into cutting costs. I heard some people talking about a strike. Strike? No way, not me. I mean, I feel like I just walked in. Yeah, tell me about it. Jimmy? Besides, this is the Daily Planet. Yeah. I mean, we may be down, but we're not out. I mean, things could be a lot worse. At least we're still unemployed. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today. Gee, I wonder what we're going to talk about today. I wonder what I could find, think about to bring up as a subject that might interest people. <laughs> wow, who would have thought? I can honestly say that the past week has been the most entertaining and joyous week of my political life in Canada. <laughs> it really has. I've been having a lot of fun with this. Uh, I'm watching all the pundits with all their analyses that I think are totally wrong. I think 99% of them are missing the point. The odd one's got it right. And uh, all I can do is say, thank you, Stephen Harper. Uh, we've gone from apathy to excitement. The same issues that were so boring during the federal election have suddenly, you know, become in the forefront of everybody's mind. So you can guess what I'm talking about today. And in the context of what is happening at this very moment in, uh, in Ottawa, uh, I walked into the studio as uh, Stephen Harper was before the Governor General, Everyone is, is expecting, at least when I walked in, that he'll be asking to prorogue Parliament. And, uh, of course, uh, as constitutional experts have advised, a sitting Prime Minister, it's very rare that the Governor-General would refuse any request by that sitting Prime Minister. But in the context of today's show, I will also be doing later in the show, I want to talk about the fallacy of coalitions and why coalitions will never work, cannot work, and why they are fundamentally flawed to begin with. Also have a interesting 
movie review for you that, um, or maybe more of a movie recommendation that certainly fits into today's um, crisis that we're seeing in Canada, and it's extraordinarily emotional. Uh, you know, it's funny, a week ago I was thinking, what can I do to get people's emotions up and get them interested in economics and get them interested in politics? <laughs> well, we're going to get a double whammy of that today, that's for sure. And, uh, of course, the big issue, the big story, what is going on in Ottawa right now? And uh, I have to tell you, this is the first time, I've, I've been writing the show, I was writing till 1 o'clock in the morning last night, knowing that the story still wasn't put to bed, pardon the pun, got up this morning, started writing some more, and I'm convinced here I have enough notes and things to say for the rest of the shows, uh, for the rest of this year anyway, because Christmas is coming up in three weeks, so I'm going to get a two-week vacation there for a while. And uh, so I imagine we're only going to have two more shows to do for this year. And uh, don't be surprised if this is a running theme, because there's much more to this than just the Canadian election. So for those of you folks who are listening to the show from outside the country, I know this might be entertaining. American en politics was entertaining to us, too. So maybe folks looking in from outside uh, find this entertaining as well. I'd like to hear from a few of you. I, it, it's hard for a Canadian being inside Canada to uh, really grasp what people outside of our whole environment situation or thinking. Well, I call them the Blockhead Coalition, okay? I think it's a perfect name. It's, it's, it perfectly describes them. It describes both the nature of the coalition and I think the, of the mental capacities of the three stooges who form the trinity of the Blockhead Coalition. You know, if they don't want to be liberal or they don't want to be New Democrat or they don't want to be separatist anymore, then you have to be prepared to give up those identities which is what distinguishes one party from another party. And of course the media of Moronic out there insists and keeps insisting, especially CBC last night, I couldn't believe it. Oh no, this is not a block NDP liberal coalition, but it's a liberal NDP coalition with the block support, which is an ironic admission, by the way, to an illegal arrangement and coalition, which I plan to explain shortly as well, if I can get to that point. Uh, you know, but it was just a few short weeks ago, on November 6th, in fact, uh, I did a segment here on the show. I broadcast a segment called The Truth About Stephen Harper. And I told, it was actually intended as a criticism of it. I, I took a criticism of him, and what it had to say was it just attested to the brilliance of the man, both as a politician and a strategist. Now, I've always maintained and stated from the very beginning of all my commentaries on Stephen Harper that he is no reactionary. This is the guy who's controlling the whole show, and he's watching all the puppets swing and sway and laugh and back and forth, and I'm just sitting there um, just having a hoot watching the whole thing. And he's playing his part so well. He did exactly what he should do last night, get up in front of the public and say nothing, do nothing. <laughs> say the most, you know, the most minimum things you can say, because the rest, the other, he, he understands that the only way to beat the other guys is to let them screw themselves. And that's what they're doing. They're doing it beautifully. They're digging the hole so deep. Uh, I'm just sitting here enjoying it. We're going to end up with a, with a Harper majority at some point, and you can expect that you'll be going to the to the polls again. There's no getting around that now, whether it's in uh, now, tomorrow, on Monday, or in three months from now. It's going to happen. Uh, or Harper will continue to govern the way he wants to govern. Um, you know, the policies that Harper presented in his budget were, in fact, excellent and necessary to the well-being of Canadians anywhere. And they were actually something I might call conservative. 
uh, key among them an end to, uh, you know, to the right to strike for all employees of state-protected monopolies. And, of course, above all, above all, and this is the only thing this is about. Get your head straight, folks. It's not, it's a, not about the economy, but I'll be talking about that because we've got to set that one to rest, too. And it's all about an end to political party tax financing. Okay, that's what it's really about. But one of the things that has really bugged me, I'll, I'll get into more detail. I'm going to be all over the place today. I've got so many things I have to squeeze in. And what I don't get in today, we will certainly get in uh, on, on subsequent shows. And I'm sure there, there's more developments in an hour than I can keep up with. But what distresses me greatly is the moral equivalence I see going on in this whole debate. And I hear it from all, of, all the people I shouldn't be hearing it from. Um, it's amazing. Uh, generally, of course, the media is all morally equi equivalent. And by that, what I'm saying is they're all out there saying, well, it's Harper's fault. It's as much his fault as the other parties, and this is just utterly false. It's not so. I was, I was stunned and dismayed to listen to even Jim Chapman, he heard him on the radio yesterday, he says the conservatives deserve to fall, not because of what they presented, but how they presented it. And I'm going, huh? You know, Chapman sees Dion as an honest individual and says that Harper has played this very foolishly. He also pointed to Harper's, quote, stupid arts funding cuts in Quebec as being another reason that the federal conservatives didn't do as well as expected. Uh, you know, and then two days ago, Andy Utman over at CJBK you know, was shouting, he always shouts, you know, uh, what was Harper doing? Many people see Harper as a bully. I blame him. Blame him for this mess. You know, and... and uh, then this morning I hear Jerry McCartney, who is the CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce, on the air saying, I agree with David Peterson. There's plenty of blame to go around for all parties. They all deserve blame. Instead of stimulating the economy, they're playing politics. Focus on Canadians, not politics, he says, which is one of the dumbest things anybody could ever say when politics is 110% of the issue. You know, the chamber is kind of like an informal union for business. Whereas unions want to steal your money for labor, business lobby groups want to steal your money for business interests, okay? That's the only difference. And of course, when times get tough, labor and management join to rob you of your money. And then they have the nerve to suggest that we should focus on people, not on politics, which is their code term for focus on politics for me, please, not politics for you. Okay, that's, that's all that means. And if you think it means anything else, well, I got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. And the other thing is, you know, so that's the morally equivalent ar argument. Harper triggered it, so he's just as much at fault as, as the blockheads, which is absolutely unfactual. I could spend two shows just going through the facts of the matter and, and uh, how it's so easy to prove, and I will probably do that over the next few, few shows, but I want to deal with some of the main arguments you'll be hearing first because they're far more important. Facts don't matter, and uh, we'll get them in there, though. Canadians don't want an election, I keep hearing, and I'm thinking, well, why the hell not? Why is anybody opposed to an election at this time? I can't think of a better time. A coalition, by the way, guarantees that an election will be imminent in any case, and it's an election that, uh, that the blockheads want to deprive Canadians of. That's exactly what it's about. That's why they want to take over Parliament. They know damn well that if they were to face you and the public right now, It'd be game over for them, and Harper knows that too. So I get a kick out of it, you know. Why is Harper poking his fingers in the eyes of the opposition? You know, I keep hearing this all the time. Well, the answer is because it places Harper in a win-win situation. He's got his majority government in the bag, pending, of course, any unforeseen major screw-ups by conservatives themselves, many who don't seem to understand the bigger picture. 
Harper's actions seem to indicate to me that he does understand that the other parties will act to destroy themselves, as I think they have already, it's done, you know, it's, it's all over as far as I'm concerned. The bullets left the barrel, <laughs> and all that's left to discuss now is how much damage will be done, and to whom, now that the trigger has been fired, you know, it's like, um, you know, the character in Star Trek, Worf, uh, the Klingon officer, who so often says when he encounters those who won't play by the convention or by the rules, they have no honor. And that pretty much summarizes my emotional reaction to the tactics resorted to by the blockhead coalition uh, of self-absorbed, childish, unprincipled, and petty new Democrats, liberals, and block members. I, I still have to stick with what I said last election, the conservatives. And I don't agree with the conservative policies or what they're doing with the economy. In fact, that's one thing we've got to deal with. But uh, they're still the only adults in the room. And the rest of them are truly the scrapings at the bottom of the political barrel. Or maybe we could say the bottom of the political outhouse because they're so full of it. Uh, the greatest crimes and obscenities in any society are the legal ones, okay? Everybody says, oh, this is legal. This is legal. That's why, but that's why the great obscenities and crimes get so great because they are legal. It was legal for every dictator to do what he did when he did it. And so, you know, I intend today to, and in subsequent shows to bury all these little Caesars at the bottom of the hole they've dug for themselves. I want to bury them legally, morally, ethically, politically, metaphysically, epistemologically, and economically. Because, you know, they're just wrong about everything. They've got everything wrong. Now, it's quarter past the hour. I have to stop there for a second because what I want you to hear right now, I've got a clip for you. This, is, this will run about almost six minutes. Actually, two clips, but from the same source. And I don't know if you heard about this, but when, uh, when this debacle started in Ottawa, if you recall, on Monday, the Toronto Stock Exchange had its largest single-day drop since 1987. And uh, although that made the news, I have, a, I have a headline here, market freefall, it says. They sure haven't been talking about it like they would have if uh, this hadn't been going on. It's amazing how something can distract us from something we thought was life and death a week ago. But... You know, I had to ask myself, what was going on back in 1987? Why do they keep talking about that period of time? What's going on in those 80s? We almost forget, right? Well, we went, th we went through the same thing then as we're going through now. And what's really ironic is, you know, you have the same, same debate. It's basically one side is saying, oh, socialism cares, and capitalism doesn't care. Capitalism is uncaring. You don't care. You have no empathy. And, of course, it's exactly the opposite. So what, what you're hearing now, what you'll hear in this next clip, was recorded in 1984 at the University of Toronto. And the first person you will hear speak is Dr. Jerry Kaplan of the NDP. And he is answering in response to the other person you'll hear speak, who's Dr. Leonard Peikoff, Ayn Rand's associate and associated with uh, the objectivist movement. He's a, probably the world's leading capitalist. But... Kaplan is responding to his suggestion that all socialism eventually will lead to governments that have no, no longer have respect for democratic process, never, no longer uh, play by the rules, and eventually have to lead to a system of total control because that's what they believe in and there's no other way that it can end. So for the next six minutes, listen to this because does history repeat itself or what? 
You, you dare denounce us for, for, for the evasions and the falsehoods. You talk about socialist governments that rule with a gun. I take it you mean British Columbia. I think, take it you mean Howard Pauley in Manitoba. I, think, I take it you mean the British Labour Party and the German Social Democratic Party and the Swedish Social Democratic Party, all of which, as you know, came to power by force, have remained in power by the gun, and have oppressed and enslaved their citizens. Well, forgive me, forgive me. I'm not ashamed of it even with this audience tonight. It's the greatest contribution socialism has made to this society. We moved. We moved the parameters of the debate to the left. So people who before the war talked about capitalism in this way no longer can afford to do it. The issue became not whether there ought to be a welfare state, but what the size of it was going to be. We won that major way of accepting that state's responsibility for taking care of those who for no fault of their own couldn't hack it, were underprivileged, were handicapped, couldn't make it. And we forced people to say that was the state's responsibility because the state alone could handle it. That's how it happened. And what's so terrible about what's happening today, what's so terrible about what's happening in the United States and in a tiny way here and with Margaret Thatcher is that these people are moving the debate back to the right where you can speak the unspeakable. Where, where John Ridpath on a, on a TV program can say that, that it is coercion, it is enslavement, it is force for the government of Canada to provide welfare assistance for pregnant teenage kids or handicapped. <laughs> I have, don't you ho 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 me, I have the notes here, I have the tape here, and I will play it for you. He believes that, he said it tonight. And he, and hold on, he acknowledged that. So please don't laugh at me. <laughs> now it's really, it's really an easy decision. It's really a quite easy decision. You, you, you talk about free enterprise, and you talk about laissez-faire, you talk about rights of property, and what you do everywhere in the world in the event is you, is you oppress, and you take the side of the privileged, and the wealthy and the predator against the side of the wretched and the destitute and the vulnerable and you, you, you take the perpetrators and you turn them into the innocent victims and you take the victims and you claim that they are somehow the enemy and you do it time and time again. You introduce, you introduce a simple division between whether you're going to be mean about how the world runs or caring and I think it's an easy answer. I just want to say that I regard the welfare state as an abomination, as morally evil. I do not base morality on the Sermon on the Mount, and I do not put forth a moral case in terms of the lame, the halt, and the blind. I say, if you are talking about what mankind requires, what man or woman requires by her nature and his nature to survive, 
You have to first say, what does a healthy, unafflicted individual require? Because the weak, the sick, the helpless, by definition, cannot survive on their own. You cannot shackle those who are able to function, allegedly in the name of helping the weak, because then you will wipe out the whole human race. So if, quote, compassion is your value, compassion for those who can't survive on their own, the first thing that you should do is take the shackles off the people who are able to think and produce and create the wealth that everyone requires to survive, including the weak. What the welfare state does is exactly the reverse. This shift in direction that Dr. Kaplan talked about is precisely a gradual tightening of the noose around the necks of those who are able to produce, and the result of this is uh, increasing economic crisis. We're oscillating just the way Nazi Germ uh, Weimar Germany did between a potential runaway inflation and a potential depression. We have hordes of unemployed just as they did as a result, not of capitalism, but of all the government controls in the economy. If we have poor, and in the West, poverty is a very relative thing, if you go to the East and see what poverty is. But such poverty as we have here is essentially caused by this very glorious welfare state which is undermining and making productivity impossible. Moreover, this is not a stationary thing. Every control requires further controls. It produces certain dislocations which necessitate still further controls. You can check that by looking at history. Every single decade, it doesn't make any difference what party is in office, is, is in office has more and more controls to try to cover the consequences of the preceding controls. And there's only one end of that road, as there was in Weimar, Germany, and that is total control. Exactly what will happen in Canada if we keep going in the direction that we're in. The welfare state is morally evil, even though people think it is not. I'm going to personalize this now. You know, you can make economic arguments, and you can make philosophical arguments, you can make all sorts of arguments, but that won't put food on the table, I keep hearing people say, as if to totally disconnect from the ideas that are necessary from putting the food on the table. Uh, you know, it's remarkable how many people think that ideas don't matter and that that's one of the things that's being discarded in this whole dividing the whole parliament up the way it is. But what I thought I'd do to approach this from a more personal point of view, and it's interesting because last week I was thinking, what can I do to make this passionate? What can I do to get people wound up? Well. I've been talking about this a long time. And this I've never done a, quote, movie review on this show before, but there is a movie. I'm not picking movies that are brand new or, or you know, if I do a review of any TV show movie on this thing, it could be any time, any, anywhere from the 1930s to something current. But a movie that speaks right to the point of what we see happening today around us on a very personal level. And it was made in 1991. I'm not going to tell you it's a great movie. It's not a great movie in the sense of, oh, gone with the wind or, a, you know, a big spectacular or anything. I'll just have to say it's a very, very solid, well-scripted, um, uh, wonderful movie. And it's called uh, Other People's Money. And it's got a terrific, terrific uh, message to it. And is what I would call, um, I guess, a capitalist movie, one of the few that you see. And uh, I went online to look up some reviews, and it didn't surprise me that uh, the movie doesn't get the greatest reviews. You might see it for two stars and all that kind of stuff. But it's an interesting story. And uh, I noticed that the um, movie review that was in uh, the, find, or in the uh, 
New York Times way back in 1991, which is still online, amazing what you can find, refers to it as a morality play, other people's money, and says it's made cuddlier. And the people who are in it, by the way, are Danny DeVito, who plays Larry the Liquidator. And, of course, he's basically the guy who's uh, the evil, you know, the dirty capitalist pig, the filthy capitalist pig. And, of course, what you find out in the movie by the end of it is he is the guy who's in control of everything. He's the moral guy. He's the good guy. And, of course, that might be why a lot of people don't like the movie because they don't want to be told that message. There's a great love story that goes on in the film, you know, and I don't want to... It's, it's a chick flick at the same time. It's got a lot of laughs, just what you'd expect from a Danny DeVito movie, eh? And, uh, you know, there's that famous opening scene of, in Other People's Money where Danny DeVito's playing with a slinky. You know, you hear the slinky going back and forth. He looks straight in the camera telling us about how much he loves money. And that sets the stage for what is to come. He says, I love money more than the things it can buy. We've played this scene on a previous show, which just happened to be about money. Go figure. But hidden in his love of money is a man of principle who, by not allowing his heart to dictate his choices, opens a gateway to a greater affair of the heart. Now, how's that for a quick synopsis of a movie? Haven't done one since grade 13. <laughs> now, it's a 1991 movie. Danny DeVito, Gregory Peck plays Andrew Jorgensen, the head of, uh, of a company that makes uh, wire, copper wire, New England steel and wire, something like that. Penelope Ann Miller is Kate Sullivan, the lawyer for the company. Piper Laurie, Mrs. Sullivan. Dean Jones, Mr. Bill Cools, who ends up being the, the, the compromiser in it. And, um, but basically, I, I checked, you know, on a, there's a movie web review website called Rotten Tomatoes, and they, they rated this only a 4.7 out of 10. I don't know what that means. But, uh, again, it demonstrates to me why I never count ratings to de determine whether a movie's good or not. This movie's got no action scenes, nobody gets killed, no injuries, no shootouts, no nudity. <laughs> Imagine that. It does have an R rating because there is sexual content. They talk about it, and there's a bit of rough language. And, uh... You know, Danny DeVito, of course, is the corporate takeover guy, and they call him Larry the Liquidator. And um, he's going after a company called New England Wire and Cable, uh, which is a division of a larger company making a lot of money, but this division is not making money, but it's got a lot of assets. And uh, it's got a lot of sub... or uh, it's being subsidized by the other companies of which it is a conglomeration of. And uh, this guy, Larry the Liquidator, you see him, he smokes, he eats donuts, he swears, he's kind of crude to some degree. I mean, uh, <laughs> what do you expect from Danny DeVito? That, that's how he does it, but he comes across great in this. And at first sight, of course, we see Larry as a proverbial greedy capitalist pig. I'm the capitalist. I simply follow the laws of free enterprise, he boasts, survival of the fittest. You're not nice, says his says lawyer Kate and his soon-to-be girlfriend. Since when do you have to be nice to be right, he retorts. And we find out as the movie goes on that he considers it immoral to attempt blackmail or greenmail. He laments the disintegration of American education system and illiteracy. He admires the resilience of the Japanese, who he notes after being defeated following World War II, proceed to economically take over the world. And, of course, he insists that all his employees and himself, and he finds out uh, the opposition, too, all speak Japanese, which is a key to the, to the solution in the story. I'm not going to tell you the end, even though you might think what I'm about to play for you might give away the movie. I, I wouldn't do that to you. And, um, but there's some great, great things going on in the background of this movie. That, that just it's a, it's a wonderful script. It's about friendship, about uh, compromise, about principle, about uh, capitalism and socialism, and mostly it's about you know the fear 
that people have when they lose their job and, and when, they, when they run into issues such as we're having today. Now what I want to play for you right now at the bottom of the hour, we're going to go to, to a break, but the first part of the break, you're going to be hearing about a four or five minute incredibly emotional and uh, fascinating speech. This was given by the head of the company who's trying to save his company. Not fighting labor here. This is management and labor getting together for the survival of their company. And in comes a liquidator who wants to take the company apart and uh, put it asunder and kill all the jobs. Okay, that's basically how it's presented to us. And um, it's interesting because I found these two speeches you're about to hear very much like the infamous John Galt speech in the book Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Uh, most of you don't might not know what that means, but there's you know it's when you have a plot and all of a sudden everything stops and somebody stops to explain everything in very technical terms. That doesn't usually work too well. But uh, you know, so in the midst of this fictional story, we're given an explicit description of the issues and emotions involved. And it's I think it's rare that this can be done successfully without becoming a drag on the rest of the story. But in other people's money. It becomes one of the film's climaxes, and as if you want to see what Wall Street versus Main Street is all about, I think this will give you not just an understanding on an economic level, but on an emotional one, and where your emotions should be. I've never seen it done this way before, but let's take a break now, and we'll be back in about, ooh, this is going to be five or ten minutes. See you soon. Well, it's, it's good to see so many familiar faces, so many old friends. Some of you I haven't seen in years. <laughs> well, thank you for coming. Well, Bill Coles, our able president in the annual report, has told you of our year, of what we accomplished, of the need for further improvements, our business goals for next year and the years beyond. I'd like to talk to you about something else. I want to share with you some of my thoughts concerning the vote that you're going to make in the company that you own. This proud company which has survived the death founder, numerous recessions, one major depression, and two world wars is in imminent danger of self-destructing on this day, in the town of its birth. There is the instrument of our destruction. I want you to look at him in all of his glory, Larry the Liquidator, the entrepreneur of post-industrial America, playing God with other people's money. The robber barons of old at least left something tangible in their wake. A coal mine, a railroad, banks. This man leaves nothing. He creates nothing. He builds nothing. He runs nothing. And in his wake lies nothing but a blizzard of paper to cover the pain. Oh, if he said, I know how to run your business better than you. That would be something worth talking about, but he's not saying that. 
He's saying, I'm going to kill you because at this particular moment in time, you're worth more dead than alive. Well, maybe that's true, but it is also true that one day this industry will turn. One day when the yen is weaker, the dollar is stronger, or when we finally begin to rebuild our roads, our bridges, the infrastructure of our country, demand will skyrocket. And when those things happen, we will still be here. Stronger because of our ordeal, stronger because we have survived. And the price of our stock will make his offer pale by comparison. God save us if we vote to take his paltry few dollars and run. God save this country if that is truly the wave of the future. We will then have become a nation that makes nothing but hamburgers, creates nothing but lawyers, and sells nothing but tax shelters. And if we are at that point in this country, where we kill something because at the moment it's worth more dead than alive. Well, take a look around. Look at your neighbor. Look at your neighbor. You won't kill him, will you? No. It's called murder and it's illegal. Well, this too is murder on a mass scale. Only on Wall Street, they call it maximizing shareholder value. And they call it legal. And they substitute dollar bills where a conscience should be. Damn it. A business is worth more than the price of its stock. It's the place where we earn our living, where we meet our friends, dream our dreams. It is in every sense the very fabric that binds our society together. So let us now at this meeting say to every Garfield in the land, here we build things, we don't destroy them. Here we care about more than the price of our stock. Here we care about people. Forgive me, I'm not familiar with the local custom. Where I come from, you always say amen after you hear a prayer. Because that's what you just heard. A prayer. Where I come from, that particular prayer is called the prayer for the dead. You just heard the prayer for the dead my fellow stockholders and you didn't say amen this company is dead I didn't kill it don't blame me it was dead when I got here 
It's too late for prayers. For even if the prayers were answered, and a miracle occurred, and the yen did this, and the dollar did that, and the infrastructure did the other thing, we would still be dead. You know why? Fiber optics. New technologies. Obsolescence. We're dead all right. We're just not broke. And do you know the surest way to go broke? Keep getting an increasing share of a shrinking market. Down the tubes. Slow but sure. You know, at one time there must have been dozens of companies making buggy whips. And I'll bet the last company around was the one that made the best damn buggy whip you ever saw. Now how would you have liked to have been a stockholder in that company? You invested in a business and this business is dead. Let's have the intelligence, let's have the decency to sign the death certificate, collect the insurance and invest in something with a future. Ah, but we can't, goes the prayer. We can't because we have a responsibility. A responsibility to our employees, to our community. What will happen to them? I got two words for that. Who cares? Care about them? Why? They didn't care about you. They sucked you dry. You have no responsibility to them. For the last 10 years, this company bled your money. Did this community ever say, we know times are tough. We'll lower taxes, reduce water and sewer. Check it out. You're paying twice what you did 10 years ago. And our devoted employees who have taken no increases for the past three years are still making twice what they made 10 years ago. And our stock, one-sixth what it was 10 years ago. Who cares? I'll tell you, me, I'm not your best friend, I'm your only friend. I don't make anything, I'm making you money. And lest we forget, that's the only reason any of you became stockholders in the first place. You want to make money. You don't care if they manufacture wire and cable, fried chicken, or grow tangerines. <laughs> you want to make money. I'm the only friend you've got. I'm making you money. Take the money. Invest it somewhere else. Maybe, maybe you'll get lucky and it'll be used productively. And if it is, You'll create new jobs and provide a service for the economy. And God forbid, even make a few bucks for yourselves. <laughs> and if anybody asks, tell them you gave it the plant. <laughs> and by the way, it pleases me that I'm called Larry the Liquidator. You know why, fellow stockholders? Because at my funeral, You'll leave with a smile on your face and a few bucks in your pocket. Now that's a funeral worth having.
uh, I think another funeral worth having would be the death of the parties that are trying to do what they're trying to do right now. Um, you know, it's an extraordinarily emotional uh, movie when you, when you hear some speeches like that. I'm not going to tell you how it ends, but uh, very passionate stuff. And I think this movie was very emotionally and intellectually honest to both sides. It didn't make anybody out to be the bad guy or the good guy in, in the big picture issue. It was very, uh, you know, straightforward and blunt view of the whole thing. Now, of course, the reason I have to bring this whole economic thing up, this isn't even the real issue. You know, the real issue of what's going on in Parliament right now is the tax credit to funding. But, of course, it's all being hidden about, uh, you know, we've got to be caring, you've got to be compassionate, got to uh, care about the public, when, in fact, uh, that's the deadliest thing we can possibly be thinking of doing. Who's the real Larry the liquidator in our society? Who is that? You know, it's really the government. They're pouring billions of our tax dollars into unnecessary production. And if you think that uh, things like what you just heard Danny DeVito talk about have nothing to do with today's economic situation, obsolescence, new technologies, it's, it's exactly that. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say cars are obsolete, talking about the car industry, but there is something obsolete there. And that seems to be Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler. I mean, th there, there's your obsolescence. The company may be obsolete. The way of doing something may be obsolete. The market may be obsolete. So capital must flow to where the market is. And the more that our governments decide to flow uh, poor capital into where it would not flow on its own, but must be forced to flow, the more you hurt a, an economy. Got a, a, media, you know, a media release from the Forest City Institute just yesterday where they say the same thing. $30 billion stimulus package or recipe for disaster, which is the package that the coalition wants to bring in, the blockhead coalition. So, you know, and here they say the proposal to stimulate Canada's currently healthy economy with a $30 billion package by the NDP Liberal Coalition is so wrong that the Forest City Institute must come out in opposition to this idea. And of course they say all the op uh, obvious things. It's going to unleash inflation, penalize homeowners, increase everybody's taxes, reduce incomes for people who are on fixed incomes, uh, reduce the value of savings, all of that stuff is going to be harm. And unfortunately, unfortunately, Harper is apparently doing some kind of plan in that regard. And so in that respect, I think it's even funnier that uh, the coalition wants to bring him down over the issue, oh, well, you're not doing anything. You're not doing anything for the economy, etc., etc., etc. Well, you know, there's a lot of accusations going back and forth, but one of the things that was brought to my attention what have I got here? Okay, this is a media release, and this came out of uh, Oshawa from the Freedom Party of Canada. And this was Paul McKeever writing an open letter to the Governor General yesterday, or was it two days ago now, December 2nd. And uh, basically, he wrote to the Governor General to point out that the, that the policy accord that was signed by the leaders of the Liberal, NDP, and BQ parties uh, would make their, their uh, coalition unconstitutional. And he respectfully requested the Governor General dissolve Parliament and facilitate a new general election. Don't know what's happening on that regard yet, uh, if called upon by the Prime Minister to do so. But basically, here's a section he really, and consider the implications of this, consider the implications of this particular section. Policy Accord, page 3, paragraph 5. Quote, the Bloc Québécois will neither move nor will it support any motions of non-confidence in the government during the terms of its support this agreement. Now, basically what they're doing by signing that is abdicating 
their responsibility in Parliament. They're basically saying they won't vote on any confidence motion. Not, not to say that they actually keep their promise, that's a whole other issue. But they say they won't vote on it. And basically that means that there's unquestioning deference to every whim of whatever the rest of Parliament says. And, you know, th and that means Parliament would not be operating for 18 months. They could put in a dictator, oh, we won't say anything about that. They could spend every cent of our money, oh, we can't say anything about that. So basically, it completely undermines the whole procedural machinery of the Constitution and deprives the, us from the, of the Constitution's protection. And basically, if you want to see that, you probably see that press release and the whole, whole deal on freedomparty.ca. But uh, it's interesting, too, that um, the one issue the Freedom Party of Canada picked the last election, didn't run candidates, was the, the taxpayer-financed issue, because we knew that would be the biggie. That was the real big issue. Now, on the other side, I'm going to take a, another quick break now. On the other side of this break, well, I've got so many things I've already left out that I want to get to, but I want to explain why, co why coalitions and compromises do not work, and I'm going to explain the principles behind that. But first, we'll take a quick break, um, and on the other side, we'll talk about the fallacy of coalitions. Steve, uh, everything all right? I've just been laid off. <laughs> 25 years on the planet. Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? It's a massacre. It's all happening so fast. Or maybe not. Maybe management's been having money problems this whole time. You know, the employees are always the last ones to know. We've got to strike back. I've been doing some polling. We have the people from printing, maintenance, distribution, administration, news staffers, even accounting. Only drastic action will convince the board we're not fooling around. Most, you're talking about a full-scale walkout? If that's what it takes, I for one refuse to accept these indignities lying down. Don't even think about it. I just didn't realize you could do something about all this. Of course I can. Point my levitating finger, make all the flowers strong and healthy. Yeah. No, Tim, I can't do that. Partiality is a weakness of strength. A weakness of strength? Yes, a weakness of strength. Now, that's actually a Martian saying, but uh, I guess it lost something in the translation. <laughs> A weakness of strength. A weakness of strength. Welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Robert Metz here on a show called Just Right, which is on every Thursday at this time between 11 and noon. You know, as Martian sayings go, uh, partiality is a weakness of strength. Uh, it does lose a little in the translation, though I think uh, the meaning still comes through. That's the problem with those Martian English dictionaries, eh? Uh, personally, I think a better word would have been the word strength might have been power. Partiality is a weakness of power because I think what is being said in that statement is that if someone's going to rule a country, be have a lot of power, they can't favor one person over the other. They've got to treat them all equally. And unfortunately, 
when uh, you get, get coalitions and people wanting to give handouts to other people, and which will be their friends, it doesn't work. I've probably covered this before on the show because it's so important and I'll be talking about it again. And it's the whole concept of the fallacy of coalitions and of compromise. Now, there is a place where it's appropriate to compromise, and we do that in what is called the free market, in the marketplace. That's where we compromise. I want to pay nothing for something, and the other guy want, who is selling it to me wants to pay, wants to get something for something. So we compromise, and the compromise is called a price. <laughs> okay, and that's where compromises take place. But on matters of principle, and that's very important, one cannot compromise. It's not possible to do so. Even if you want to, you can't. At least not without destroying your whole purpose and your cause. And Ayn Rand wrote on this way back in 1964. In an, in an essay called The Anatomy of Compromise, in which she laid out three very simple rules, which I'll repeat for you today. But first she wrote, quote, The present state of our culture may be gauged by the extent to which principles have vanished from public discussion, reducing our cultural atmosphere to the sordid, petty senselessness of a bickering family that haggles over trivial cr concretes while betraying all its major values, selling out its future for some spurious advantage of the moment. To make it more grotesque, that haggling is accompanied by an aura of hysterical self-righteousness, in which the form of belligerent assertions that one must compromise with anyone on anything, except on the tenant that one must compromise, and by panicky appeals to practicality. Boy, is that almost... She must have been watching uh, Dion from heaven or wherever she is in the afterlife. Anyways, it is therefore important, she says, for those who do not care to continue that suicidal process, to, con to consider a few rules about the workings of principles and practice, and about the relationship of principles to goals. The three rules listed below are by no means exhaustive, they are merely the first leads to understanding a vast subject. And here are the rules, and I have to tell you I read this 20 years ago, maybe the first time. I've had many, many, many chances to test them. And you know, they work flawlessly. I've never seen them fail. And if you do think they failed, then you've just made a, a mistake in identifying something. But here's the rules. And they're only basically one sentence each. Number one, in any conflict between two groups, or people, could be anything, but we'll stick to groups, who hold the same principles, it is the more consistent one that wins. Okay, so you've got two people. They basically believe the same thing. One guy's going back and forth, wavering. The other guy's straight and true. Who's going to win? The guy who's straight and true. That's if you've got two people or two groups with the same principles. Rule number two, in any collaboration between two groups who hold different principles, it will be the more evil or the more irrational one who wins, because evil and irrationality are the same thing. Eh? So basically, if you have one person that believes in the good and another person that believes in evil, the good has nothing to gain from evil. Okay? However you might define it, doesn't matter which side of the spectrum you're on. But good has nothing to gain from evil. Evil has everything to gain from good. And that is why in any collaboration between the two, that's why evil wins. That's why evil wins constantly in those things. And that's why all the people who say, compromise, get along, let's work together, let's do all that stuff, they're evil. They're spreading evil. That's what they want to do. And the third rule is when opposite basic principles are clearly and openly defined, it works to the advantage of the rational side. When they are not clearly defined, but hidden or evaded, it works to the advantage of the irrational side." End quote. So, 
you know, if altruism is the basic moral principle, then you have to advocate a welfare state, just like we were talking about earlier. There's no other choice, and that's exactly what you see. And, you know, as Rand says, the spread of evil is a symptom of a vacuum. Whenever evil wins, it is only by default, by the moral failure of those who evade the fact that there can be no compromise on basic principles. In any compromise between food and poison, it's only death that can win. In any compromise between good and evil, it is only evil that can profit, which is a quote out of Atlas Shrugged. Um, so obviously evil cannot work with good. Evil cannot cooperate with good. The two things don't mix, it's oil and water. So the so-called coalition we're witnessing here is a coalition of mutual blackmail. That's what they really are, okay? Green mail, which was considered immoral by Larry the Liquidator. And, you know, I hear last night Stefan Dion proudly boasting in his national broadcast, which is central to everything they, they, they stand for, consensus is a great Canadian value, he says. <laughs> it sure is. Just heard a commentator this morning on the news say, uh, these are my principles. If you don't like them, I have others. What was he referring to? He was referring to the NDP already changing its stand on the war in Afghanistan, now supporting it, which they say they're doing to, to support the Liberals. But isn't it interesting? That's a conservative position. Go figure. How's that possible? You know, it's, uh, it's just amazing. Beyond the, and the whole thing, again, I didn't, I didn't dwell on this today because I could have taken up a whole hour with explaining what the whole tax credit thing is and get into some technicalities that are a little bit boring. I'm going to get into that again later. But you have to understand that beyond being private associations, and they are private, owned and operated by private interests, that's a political party, okay? I own one. I, you can't take it away from me. I own it. I actually own a party. I started one. And while a lot of people think that these things are public bodies, they are not. Um, they're private bodies, owned and operated by private individuals, private groups, associations, however they put themselves together. They're not run by the government, okay? Um, political parties are artificial, abstract constru constructs within the workings of Parliament. They're just a convention. We talk about that a lot, even on left, right, and center, when we had Jeff Schlemmer and Jim Chapman here. And even though politicians deny this constantly, they deny it all the time, and it just proves that what the true division in the House always is, it's dependent entirely upon the ideas and the philosophy that are the true dividing lines in any parliament, as I've always been saying. And as the blockheads are so apt, aptly demonstrating by their own actions. They did it in the last election, I, you know, and they're doing it now. Let's say fair, I don't care. Let's say fair, I don't care. They all chimed in like little children. And what's even worse, the prayer that they're all chiming in together is a prayer of death. It's like Danny DeVito said in his earlier comments. You know, caring is the code word for stealing your money to give to their political support base and to, co and to corporate welfare, which will strangle and hamper our economy for decades to come. It's got nothing to do with the economy, since that's beyond anybody's control. And remember, real caring is a voluntary action, and real caring is utterly destroyed by state altruism. You notice uh, those ads on some radio stations by the Canadian Medical Association that they run to convince us that our doctors care about us? You know what that tells me? They don't. They don't care. If doctors cared, they wouldn't have to advertise the fact. It should be kind of evident to all the patients in there, shouldn't it? So I could just go on and on, and I will go on and on, but we've got to stop now because we are at the top of the hour, and we'll have to pick this one up next week. So I hope you'll join us on our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, act right, do right, and think right. Take care. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. 
Yeah, I'm a successful stand-up comedian, Canadian stand-up comedian, earning well over $6,800 a year. <laughs> I love doing what I do. It's good to be here. I love working with, uh, like talking to the crowds. I get uh, a lot of hecklers wherever you go. One of my best heckle lines I've ever had in my life was out west in a little small town called Kelowna, British Columbia. Beautiful town. Had a guy sitting in the front row. Everybody's enjoying the show. Some guy sitting in the front row doing his Easter Island bit. Stone Gollum, straight face, nothing. I said, sir, what's the matter with you? What's, what's your problem? What do you do? And I get right in his face. Just start hacking on him, just having a good time with the guy. Turns to his buddy and he says, you going to bail me out in the morning? I back off. You going to bail me out in the morning? I back off.